Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. In today's episode, doctoral student Florence Medenga interviews Jay Rosen, Associate Professor of Journalism at NYU and Director of the Studio 20 Graduate Program. Jay publishes frequently as a journalism critic and is the founder of Press Think, a blog about the state of contemporary journalism. Hope you enjoy. My name is Florence Madenga. I'm a PhD student at the Annenberg School for Communication and a research fellow with the Center for Media Risk. I'll be speaking with Jay Rosen, who is a prolific media critic, scholar, and journalism professor at New York University. Jay has been a thought leader in media and journalistic practice for a long time and has written on citizen and public journalism, democracy, and political reportage. He runs the blog Press Think at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, sits on various prestigious advisory boards, and his writing and media criticism has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, Harper's Magazine, and many other publications. He is an advocate for analyzing, rethinking, and reshaping press models in the United States and beyond, and I'm very excited to pick his brain about the state of journalism today. Hi, Jay. Thank you for uh, joining us today. You're really welcome. appreciate it. So I have a couple questions for you. One is just more about your role in sort of the state of journalism. Uh, you had a discussion with Ezra Klein a couple of days ago on Vox about the state of political journalism. He described your role as sort of someone who can see outside the system a little clearly, but uh, you didn't say exactly what your role was. So I was curious to, to hear, how do you see yourself sort of in that system? What's mm. your role? And what's sort of your responsibility to intervene or not? Mm, no one's ever asked me that. Well, I'm not a journalist. I don't have long experience in newsrooms. And I'm not an academic in conversation with other academics as much as I like to engage with journalists about their practices. So what is my role? Well, I'm a critic, sort of similar to the role that a theater critic has in the development of the American theater or a movie critic has for American film. But I'm particularly interested in and concerned about the legitimacy of the institution of the American press. So as a critic, I'm starting with questions like, why do we need the press? What is it supposed to be doing for us? What makes this institution important? What makes it different than just a business? And what are some of the organizing ideas of the American press and how well is the current press living up to those ideas. Mm -hmm. 
in the same interview, you critique pack journalism a lot, where, you know, if everyone's doing the same thing, then nobody's wrong. And then it's sort of hard to hold people accountable. So I was wondering, you know, this this pack journalism thing and, and this sort of these dynamics have always been there. But there was a sense that there's something sort of especially egregious about Twitter and what's going on in those mm. with those dynamics. So I was wondering if you could expand more on that. Well, the phenomena of pack journalism and journalists as a group deciding what the story is goes back a long way. The, the classic book, The Boys on the Bus, which is not actually in, in journalism studies or media studies book, but was written by a journalist about peers, is all about that. It's all about how the boys on the bus, and they were almost all boys, not only work together, but they, they kind of settle on what the story is, mm-hmm. and then they all report the story. And so there's nothing new about it. It's, it's been a dynamic in the American press for more than 50 years. And my concern is that professionalization itself, the, the long series of changes and um, transformations of journalism into something like a profession, which took place from roughly the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century up to today, um, orients journalists towards one another rather than towards the users, the, the voters, the readers. Uh, and it does that for a lot of different reasons. And so Twitter comes along, and it just it's just another tool for that. But the dynamic of journalists judging journalism based on what other journalists think is journalism, there's nothing new about that. That is, for example, what the prize culture is all about. The most significant thing you can do as a journalist is not necessarily to inform people, it's to win a prize, which is awarded by, guess what, other journalists, right? That's just, it's a, it's a peculiarity, it's a, it's a feature mm-hmm. of the culture of the press that doesn't necessarily serve the ideas embedded in the institution of the press. On Twitter, you're pretty critical about specific members of the press or specific publications. Damn um, right. And then, <laughs> and then you, you follow that up on press things as well. So one of the things you're really critical about is sort of how the New York Times has been balancing sort of who they are. And you say you come to this as sort of a both a critic and a reader, a, a loyal reader of the New York Times. When I read um, your post on press thing, um, he, was, he had a lot of grievances, I guess, and a lot of sort of things you're upset about, about what the Times shouldn't be doing. Yeah. But then I was waiting for sort of things that they should be doing or how they remedy this? One of the best definitions I ever heard of a, a good newspaper mm-hmm. is that it's similar to a candid friend. So a candid friend is somebody who knows you and uh, appreciates you and understands you, but can also 
tell you the truth mm -hmm. when you need to hear it. And I think there's value in that for thinking about what the relationship between a newspaper, a newsroom, and its public should be. And in order for that kind of relationship where I understand you and therefore I can also tell you truths that you may not want to hear, mm -hmm. in order for that to happen, journalists have to be in conversation with their readers. They have to know where they're coming from. They have to respect their values. They have to understand who they are. And the core readers and supporters of the New York Times are liberal, cosmopolitan, coastal, educated people. Those are the people who believe in the New York Times. Those are the people who support it. Those are the mm -hmm. people who read it. And it's important for the journalists who work there to understand that. Now, that doesn't mean they pander to them. It means that those are the people they have to be candid friends to. And in the minds of the people who work in that newsroom, I think they believe something else. I think they believe that they are the newspaper for the entire country and that they address sort of everybody in America equally. They sort of have no particular constituency. Their constituency is everybody interested in news. And while that might be an attractive abstraction, it isn't actually the case. Mm -hmm. So what I wrote about in my post was the anxiety that is created when the readers of the New York Times, and especially the core readers, obviously have more power. They have more power now because the internet is two-way. The relationship is more two-way than it used to be because they can talk back to the journalists and they can criticize them. And nobody who is online can completely avoid that. So I think that the Times has to come to grips with that. It has to, it has to figure out how to express that relationship and not be too tied down by it at the same time. people at the Times, I guess reporters at the Times, have sort of been relying on this, you know, the Times has always been known as sort of the paper record mm -hmm. kind of thing, where it's sort of just legitimate because it's the Times, yeah. and they've never had to answer to anyone, right? and that's sort of the brand that of the Times. Do right. you think that they think that by sort of making these changes of ha or having to engage more, that would change what the Times means? Well, you're right. There is, especially at the New York Times, there's this, this feeling almost of like being a cathedral of news, mm -hmm. newspaper of record. Uh, all the news is fit to print. E each one of these constructs says nothing about any particular priorities they may have, any view of the world they may have. It's all truth, information, fairness, in, in a way has no content, right? It's just, in many ways, the New York Times sees itself not as a practitioners of great journalism, but as the definition of journalism, uh, which, is, which is quite different. That's why I wrote about the difference between the marketing campaign of the Washington Post after mm -hmm. the 2016 election, Democracy Dies in Darkness, that specifically puts the Washington Post in defense of democracy. New York Times didn't go there. Mm -hmm. Its marketing campaign was all about truth, 
We are truth. We give you truth. Truth is hard. That's why you need the New York Times, because it's hard to know what the truth is, and we give you the truth. That's a very different kind of message. <laughs> now, why is that a problem? It's true that the press should not become the political opposition to Trump. I agree with that. That's what Marty Baron in the Washington Post says. That's what the New York Times believes as well. And, and I'm with them on that. However, I believe journalists have to find a way to oppose a political style that erodes democratic institutions. And when your focus is on truth, all the news, uh, you're not going to do that. And that's where I think leadership has been missing. How can the New York Times come to a style of journalism in which it protects democratic institutions, of which the press is one, but it's not the only one under assault. It's not the only one being eroded. So that to me is like a huge problem in journalism, but it's in, in the current like press think of the New York Times, you can't even talk about that. There's no, there's no room to put that on the table. I'm very dissatisfied with that as a reader, as a critic, and as a loyalist. On Twitter, you also named another um, <laughs> publication you weren't that happy with, and that was USA Today, yep. and that was their decision <laughs> to publish that op-ed by Trump, um, yes. which a lot of people, I guess, were also not happy with that. The problem I had with that was not that they ran an op-ed by Donald Trump. That's mm -hmm. a totally valid thing to do. The president already has a big platform, so I don't think it's a particularly creative use of your platform to have the president of the United States write a piece for you. But if that's what you want to do, it's totally a uh, valid thing to do. However, especially for the President of the United States, you can't lower your standards for publication for him just because he's a powerful guy. And when you run an op-ed that has a factual error or a plain, flat-out lie mm -hmm. in every other sentence, what you're saying is we're abandoning our standards so that we can get this piece into our pages. And there's no justification for that. There's no legitimacy to that. So that was why I criticized the USA Today, and lots of other people did, too. I, it was by no means yeah. was, was it like a lonely voice from NYU. It was the opposite. They, they basically convicted themselves, and they were embarrassed in front of their peers, which probably made a lot more difference to them than what I had to say about them. But to answer the deeper question here, I always go back when I talk or think about the, this problem of, on the one hand and the other hand, or both sides journalism, to something that the Washington Post reporter Paul Taylor wrote in 1990 in his book, See How They Run, which was about election coverage. And it's a very unusual passage in which he talks about this formula in news writing where you write your story from this, from this midpoint between the best and the worst that could be said about a candidate, hmm. or the best or the worst that could be said about a policy proposal. And he recognizes that this is what he as a professional journalist has learned to do. And he recognizes that, yes, he's trying to capture the truth, he says, but 
He's also seeking refuge. This is the phrase he uses. That if you find that midpoint and you don't endorse the best or the worst that could be said about somebody or a policy proposal, mm -hmm. that you are protecting yourself against criticism. Mm. You ask me what my role is. One of my roles is worrying about the legitimacy of the American press. That's what I said. That principle, protecting yourself against criticism, that is not a legitimate principle. Your job is to tell us what the truth is as best you can find it, not the version of it that's going to lead to the least criticism. And I felt that if we could corner the editors of the USA Today and ask them, come on, why did you run this thing? It's not like the president lacks voice. Mm -hmm. It's not like he said anything new, right? So what was it about this that really drove you to make this decision? I think the answer would be some version of showing how even-handed we are, showing that we are both sides, avoiding criticism. And I don't think that is a legitimate pursuit because trying to inform the public is gonna open you to criticism. That's part of public life. Lately, your projects have sort of gone international in mm -hmm. scope a little bit. Um, I guess you said it was sort of inspired by the grief you felt <laughs> after the 2016 election. You felt like you needed to do something. Grief is a good word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so you're looking at how, how can we learn from other sort of press systems and models yeah. elsewhere. So uh, you're collaborating, I guess, and working with uh, the Dutch site, The Correspondent. And they've got a lot of ideas about what you call how to optimize uh, the news for trust. And so you're trying to see how well this model can work here in the U.S., um, and of course, one of the first questions would be, you know, culturally, uh, politically, in all these ways, the Netherlands is very different. So, you know, True. the fact that they're very successful in the Netherlands that doesn't, doesn't necessarily project how well they're going to do here. Like, how confident are you that this model will work um, well here? Is this like very, very experimental? Are there certain parts of that model you think are really going to catch on and the mm -hmm. others are sort of not as useful? Mm -hmm. Well, um, let's go back to the day after the election, November 9th, 2016. I was shocked by the results, as so many other people were. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly upset because I'm supposed to understand these things. You know, I mean, my, I, I make my living with my ideas and my understanding of the world. And I realized that somewhere back in my thinking, I had made some kind of wrong turn somewhere because my own models for politics and media wouldn't, would never have predicted that this could happen. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that I went to Germany this summer and studied the German press was I thought maybe by looking at another system I could find that point where I took a wrong turn somehow get outside the familiar world of American journalism that I had tried to master uh, and American politics and the intersection of those two things. So with this Dutch site, The Correspondent, I'd been following them for a while, and I, I saw that they had this very successful uh, crowdfunding round when they started in 2013, 18,000 people signed up. Um, and all the savvy 
future of journalism, people said, well, let's see what they have after a year, because mm -hmm. it's easy to be enthusiastic about something. And um, it's actually the renewal of those early members that tells you the, the story. So after a year, they had like 35,000. <laughs> then they had 40,000. So then I started following them very closely. And the more I studied their model, the more I concluded that it was optimized, not for clicks or prizes or scoops or profits, but for trust. And that, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, seemed like crucial. Um, so that's when I decided to, to work for them. Now, the, the question you ask is a very good one. So it works in the Netherlands. Who's to say it'll work in the US? We don't know which element in their success is genuinely Dutch and absent in mm -hmm. an American or English-speaking context, we don't know. Um, the only way to find out is to try it. Am I optimistic? Not really. Uh, I'm not optimistic about anything. And so it's a gamble. But we've raised the money we need to start our membership campaign. We have made the best arguments we can for why should be, people should become members of the correspondent US, English-speaking correspondent. We're going to have a very professional and, I think, attractive uh, pitch. And we've sort of we've done it the right way. We've, we've, we've been professional about it. We had the intelligence, the time, the money, and the care necessary mm -hmm. to do a good job. So since I feel like we're giving it our best shot, it's not so much that I'm optimistic as I'm, um, I'm resolved <laughs> that uh, we're giving this a good test, mm -hmm. and we'll see. And even if it fails, which it could easily fail, it'll enter into a kind of history of experiments for how to support serious journalism. And it could have lots of effects down the road. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Let me say one more thing on this. It's really important to understand that all f systems for supporting public service journalism are subsidized by something. They're subsidy systems. And the subsidy changes over time. The advertising subsidy just happened to be one that worked for a long period of time, but it's not working anymore. There's the state subsidy. There's the subsidy of rich patrons, right? Mm -hmm. Billionaires, that, that's a subsidy. There's the taxpayer subsidy. There's the subsidy that events can provide to journalism. There's all, many different forms, and it's m most likely that in the future we're gonna have to find a new combined subsidy system rather than rely on one, as we did so for so long in the U.S. context with advertising-based media. This particular attempt to find a membership-based subsidy system mm -hmm. may fail, but it could still, by failing, get us somewhere. That's what I mean by resolved. It's like, it's, this is a good thing to try, mm -hmm. and we'll learn a lot from it.
One interesting thing I found was journalism education. Yeah. And of course, I have to ask because (laughs) you are a professor and you do run um, Studio 20. So uh, one of the things that I guess students and journalism and, you know, journalists in general are worried about is sort of having to adapt to this digital space, like the new norms for everything that's going on, um, and sort of be innovative about their storytelling um, and be cognizant of all these um, issues we talked about, right? So I wanted to know from all these things that you know now, how exactly you're sort of preparing your students um, Mm -hmm. to do this. And what presumptions of journalistic norms or practice you think are sort of not really useful anymore that you're throwing out or if you're not really <laughs> for that. Hmm. And also, you know, sort of with the, with the anxiety following, you know, graduation and having to find jobs and even, you know, journalists getting laid off all the time. I wanted to discuss as well sort of the issue of revenue streams, hmm. how you teach, you know, how newsrooms are funded newsrooms having in-house agencies to sort of supplement their revenue and things like that. A lot of people are doing that. Blockchain-based funding models, even personal brand um, journalism, things like that, how you're approaching that. Mm. Well, we don't teach about those things directly Mm -hmm. um, because none of them are like the model or the answer. But what we do is we dispense with certain... Uh, conventions of journalism education that uh, were common to almost all J schools when I started. So an example would be when I started in journalism school, it was very common for the dean of the school on the first day of class to say, uh, welcome uh, new students to University of Maryland or University of Texas. We're so proud that you've chosen us to, to study journalism with and journalism is the only profession mentioned in the First Amendment. This used to be a common thing that that would said. And I always thought this was so weird because I've read the First Amendment. It doesn't mention the profession of journalism. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of the press. Freedom of the press belongs to everyone. So we start in my classroom from the presumption that the press belongs to the public. Mm-hmm. And journalism is something that the, a free people has to secure for itself in order to remain free. So that's one thing that's different. A second is, um, I believe that the so-called church-state separation between the newsroom and the business side meant no seat at the table when the important decisions were made. It was infantilizing. And I'm trying to educate people who can work at the intersection of business models, technology, Mm -hmm. and editorial work, and serve to improve all of them so that we have a strong press. So my students are very interested in that. They they don't consider that external to journalism. That is basic to journalism. And Mm -hmm. so that's the second thing. A third thing is, in my program, which is a small part of the journalism school, and in a way it's like a corner, the only reason I can do this is because it's so small. Nobody really knows what I'm doing. So we educate people for what are now called bridge roles in newsrooms. That, that bridge roles are people who can connect the programmers to the storytellers, to the data scientists, mm-hmm. and work in between departments so that 
better products can be made and so that companies can adjust to market conditions and so that journalism has a business model again. So bridge roles is part of it. Fourth thing is we do projects. So I call Studio 20, my graduate program, a consulting group that gets paid in problems. So what we do is is we take ownership of problems in digital adaptation Mm -hmm. that news companies are having and we persuade them to give us those problems and our students take them apart and work on them and then we return to the company's solutions and ideas and we learn by working on 100% real problems and they get something of value because these are things they couldn't devote enough time to and then Studio 20 gets the reputation for uh, innovation. And so in that model, we're not just like learning how to tell stories. We're helping the news industry solve problems, which arises from a, another belief of mine, which is the American Journalism School as an institution arose shortly after the turn of the century, 1910, 1920, in that period. It sort of had one model from the beginning up until recently. A consensus emerged about what these schools were for. And the consensus was, send us people we can plug into our production routine tomorrow. That's what the American Journalism School has always done. Um, That's what the industry wanted. It wanted people who could literally be plugged into the production routine tomorrow. And what I mean by tomorrow is the day after you're hired. You learn where the bathrooms are, you sign your HR forms, you get a desk, you know? And the next day you are sent out on assignment and you return a story that can run in the paper or air in the broadcast. That was the model, and it was great. Everyone loved it. The students loved it because it was practical training, which is the one and only demand I've ever heard from a journalism student. The employers loved it because they offloaded their training costs onto the university. Parents loved it because it was jobs. Mm -hmm. And university presidents loved it because it, it gave away to interact with a powerful force in the community, which is the local media. So everybody was happy, everyone loved it. Send us people we can plug into our production routine tomorrow. The problem is that universities are not only in the business of sending workers to industry. We're supposed to be producing new knowledge. And that was left out of that. So when all of a sudden, because of the disruption that the internet the digital world is brought to journalism, we needed a new production routine, a new business model. We had to reinvent newsrooms. You couldn't turn to the journalism school for that. They were never asked to do that. They had no facility to do that. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the orientation. They didn't have the knowledge. They were useless. And that's the way the industry wanted it. So this is a long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) Another thing I'm trying to do is push journalism school up the value chain so that we graduate people that the industry actually values because they know how to reinvent journalism and make and adapt it Mm -hmm. and innovate within it. And I tell my students that even though content production is a great skill, we need great content producers. If you know how to adapt news production to a shifting digital world, that's going to be seen as more valuable by the industry. So I'm trying to graduate people who are more valuable to the industry.
just to, I guess, wrap this up, all these things you said sound like they, they address the problem, but we know that, you know, change, especially institutionally, like it's, it's, it's a very slow sort of, you know, yeah. process. Totally. Um, how optimistic are you that, I guess, this change will happen, uh, like, soon enough to actually change things politically? Or... Um, do you think it, it's just going to take so long that by the time it finally happens, it's too late, and then we're going to have to figure something else out? Yeah. I'm not optimistic about the political press adapting to the crisis in democracy that, or the civic emergency that we're living through. Mm-hmm. It would have started to happen if it was going to happen. However, the failure of the conventional way of reporting on politics, which we are seeing and we're going to continue to see, could inspire a whole wave of reforms and new generation of people. So it's almost like I'm, I'm sort of optimistic about the wreckage. That might really end up changing something. I'm not sure. But I, I, it's very hard to be optimistic about anything going on in the United States right now. Um, and certainly in that intersection of media, politics, and platforms, you know, which we have to deal with every day here, it just seems to be getting worse in, in a lot of ways. If I wasn't working with these Dutch guys <laughs> uh, on something that excites me and that is, uh, you know, at least somewhat uh, hopeful, I, I, might, uh, I might be measuring my years to retirement. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by Florence Madenga and edited by me, Aaron Shapiro. Special thanks to Jay Rosen, Emily Plowman, and Waldo Aguirre. Barbie Zelizer is the director of the Center for Media at Risk. For more information about the center, upcoming events, and publications by affiliated faculty or students, check out www.ascmediarisk.org. <laughs>